Okay, ladies and gentlemen, let's uh, gather at the river. Everybody got their cup of coffee? And Mr. Long would like to be able to say a few words to you. Okay, well, um, we are now going to, um, well, since, uh, since the children's program is uh, tomorrow, I mean next Sunday, um, we're basically, I'm going to continue on with the study in here in Colossians. And, um, and then uh, we're pretty much into all the rest of the Christmas events, and so we'll just kind of stay in Paul's epistle um, as we were last week, where we talked actually about the same text that we have used in the sermon today. Um, maybe just a couple of things here. Um, I, 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 I find myself uh, always clipping articles out of the Wall Street Journal. Um, I guess sometimes the commentary that I find there is oftentimes more in keeping maybe with a little bit of what we might describe as our, our Christian worldview. Um, I don't know how many of you saw this article uh, this last uh, week uh, called The Death of Self-Restraint by a guy by the name of Daniel Henninger. And he, uh, he really takes up kind of this, um, he starts off, the Harvey Weinstein sexual harassment fire burns on consuming famous men and uh, basically goes on to talk about this you know well yeah it's a it's a problem but he believes that we should actually go deeper to see where the real problem lies and what you basically have is you have a contradiction that in a sexually permissive culture you can't exactly say if if morality ultimately is decided by one's own sense of what right and wrong or what, what is acceptable, um, that it's very difficult to ever resist those moments or to avoid those moments where people are no longer guided by their conscience and their consciences have been ill-informed. And I think what he's, I think what's, what he's driving at here is that um, we, you, you all, you, you, you're kind of, it's a kind of a setup, if you will, that you have a culture that basically says you don't have to worry about your conscience when it comes to immorality. But by the way, uh, if you are now having no bad feelings about doing bad things, we're going to uh, nail you. We're going to uh, take away your freedoms. We're going to take away your reputation. Um, you really can't have it both ways. We've got to be able to go back to morality Morality as it is guided by conscience, but as I, my, my sermon today, I want to talk a little bit about how it is that the sinful nature works and why it is that this is always going to be the rock of Sisyphus because even if you get into a puritanic moral society, you will always find that you get the same result or sometimes it goes underground. Um, I speak with a certain degree of experience from Utah 
where uh, Utah is a society that has a whole lot of very specific expectations, a lot of laws, uh, and even to the point of, you know, you cannot consume alcohol, you're not supposed to be drinking coffee, uh, you're not supposed to um, be engaging in um, sexual activity outside of marriage, um, uh, you are supposed to be in, uh, a person who devotes yourself to uh, going on missions, uh, actively involved in church, um, and uh, in any case, I'm being distracted by my wife and daughter uh, who are here today. By the way, for those of you that may not have ever known, this is my daughter, Andrina, and um, she's, um, she used to be my favorite. Um, <laughs> she, she moved to California, and, and it was all over with. That's my son, Christian, back there not paying attention to Bible class, uh, just, <laughs> Christian, Christian, hello, Christian. Okay. So, um, <clears throat> so much for keeping a, a continuous thought here. All right. Um, a while back, I, I talked a little bit about how it is that um, there's this structure to the temple that in the same way that the temple in Jerusalem was a reflection of what Moses saw upon that mountain of heaven itself this sanctuary was something which was something that he saw upon the mountain but there is that image of that temple was it was if you will kind of an image of God or an image of who God is and there is this, um, the creation is kind of this um, interesting thing that actually reflects maybe even our own psychological suke, our soul, soulful development. And that is to say that here, this is what they call, the, what Paul calls a shadow, that this was a shadow of the heavenly and that the only way that the people of God who are worshiping here are able to be cleansed is by means of that blood of the sacrifice. So that this blood which is brought in here once a year on the Day of Atonement, sprinkled upon the altar, this blood literally forgives or pardons the people's sins, which then enables them, as God's people, through this forgiveness, to be, if you will, the image of God in the world. And... Um, what this is, what Paul will be describing here in great part is this, that by nature, the old Adam is here in that inner sanctum. That we have this sinful nature, and the sinful nature does sinful things. But when those sinful things are done, these are what we call, Paul calls deeds. When those deeds are done, the old Adam is never willing to accept responsibility. The old Adam has to justify and explain or even maybe blame God. The old Adam has to justify what, what he's doing. And so consequently, the very thing which could cleanse the old Adam, the very thing which could actually restore Adam is the thing that he, he comes to hate itself. So that the, 
Paul says that he, become, he is alienated in his mind. And this alienated mind, therefore, sets itself against the wisdom of God. Paul will then say, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. What does he mean? That only in this blood, this forgiveness that we get from Christ, does that old Adam get challenged. And when that blood of Christ comes and cleanses, Christ himself takes up residence inside of us. That this, this inner sanctum actually becomes a Christ indwelling. The sinful nature, however, remains. Sinful nature remains. And that sinful nature militates and does things, but the blood of Christ cleanses and forgives and is constantly in the process of restoring us once again to the wisdom of God. So that all of God's word, if you, if you will, actually becomes foolishness to us unless that blood of Christ is cleansing us from our sins. Only by the cleansing, only by the forgiveness do we then come to embrace God's wisdom as being true wisdom. Otherwise, what we do is we see God's wisdom as foolishness. So let's go to Colossians. Chapter 1, verse 25. Um, we'll back it up to 24. Okay, I guess every, everybody's grabbing Bibles here. Okay. He writes, Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now, we're gonna, we could talk a little bit about how it is that this sinful nature, a part of the, the uh, humbling, if you will, of the sinful nature, is the fact that God actually, out of his kindness and mercy, allows us to go through suffering. Anybody here? Has anybody here not suffered in their lifetime? Well, we, we, when we're younger um, and we're involved in sports, right, we come to realize that no pain, no... Uh, it's just like, like, like liturgy. I mean, you guys are... You know how it works, right? Now, we, Paul talks about suffering for Christ, though, and he does not want us to think that just suffering for its own sake is... Uh, is, is redemptive. That actually, uh, you know, Paul will even talk about the thorn in the flesh. That God gives us thorns in order to keep us humble. And the one who is blessed, uh, he will say, in uh, the writer to the book of Hebrews, will say, he'll say, you know, you're, if you have not been disciplined, then you're not legitimate sons. A father, when a father loves his children, he disciplines them. And the word there for discipline is that he uses a stick. And that's that age between 5 and 13, as the Greeks would have understood it. 
where you, in order to be able to teach a child what a child maybe can sometimes not understand, is that you actually use that stick and go Too! whenever they reach for something that they shouldn't reach, whenever they touch something, whenever they're doing something that's harmful to them, you use the stick. And he says, a true son is always disciplined by a father. And of course, what happens is you grow up and you look back and you discover that your parents, who you thought were rather ignorant, or maybe also pretty smart, and maybe knew something that you didn't know. Well, he gives us these crosses in our life, if it's for the sake of Christ, that ultimately leads us, like Paul, to come to say, no, I'm a person who does not have it all together. I don't have strength. I'm actually a person who must depend upon God for my strength. And when this sinful nature comes to say, all right, you think that you're powerful, you think that you don't need God, then I'm going to show you that you do. I think I've told you maybe the story before about the man who I got a call in the middle of the night and, and, and his wife was up at the hospital and she was trembling and she said, my husband, <clears throat> his heart stopped. He had um, fibrillation. Fibulation? Is that the word? It, yeah, he, it, it was, his heart stopped from the, the this fluctuations or whatever you call it. Anyway, she said his heart stopped and it was stopped for 10 minutes. And they brought him back to life. And they were as humble as they could be and they wanted to be able to come to church and they wanted to be able to get things right with God and all those things. And then... I went on vacation and I came back and on my recorder I had this trembling voice once again. Well, I, to, to back that up, I had actually gone and called on these people about a month after this happened and they didn't come back to church and everything was, well, I went over to call on them and the guy said, he said, I've taken medication. My doctor says that this won't happen again. He said, I don't need to worry about it anymore. I went on vacation, I came back, there was a trembling voice on, my, on the tape recorder. The lady said, could you please come over? And of course I had been gone, but she said, could you please come over? My husband just went down in an airplane. There was a wind shear on an airplane down in Dallas, Texas, as they were flying to Utah, and 360-some people died in that airplane crash. And he was one of them. Do you, do you see, sometimes is it possible that when God gives us something that tells us that we are not gods in our own right, that possibly we're mortal? Uh, St. Augustine said people grow old, they don't realize what that means. They're growing old. What does that mean? It means you're going to die. And do we count those days? Well, the sinful nature is fortunate when it gets the stick when it gets disciplined. Now Paul goes on to say that I, I fill up in my flesh what's still lacking. You know, he goes to, he gets beaten. He gets thrown into prison. He says, thank you. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. <clears throat> the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but now disclosed to the saints. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you.
the hope of glory. So when this happens, this thing that takes place in us, which is a work of the Holy Spirit, but also Paul will say you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. This is baptismal language. That this <coughs> is something that took place when we were baptized into Christ. Literally, truly, actually, Christ was born, reborn in us. And he says, that's the hope of glory. What's the glory that he's speaking about? The hope of glory. When God will change this mortal nature and put on immortality. <clears throat> this is just the beginning. We talked about, in the sermon today, we talked about the image of God. The image of God is not something that is complete in us. It is something that begins in us. And what's happening now is that that image is gradually <coughs> growing, but this sinful nature still remains. Could I talk you out of a, uh, either a glass of water or a cup of coffee? Thank you. <coughs> or beer. Yeah, whatever. I've heard the rumor that there are still some Einbecker beers in there right now. So um, if we had only had one service, um, that's the way it would be. Yeah. All right. So um, let's go on. This now, we, 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 this, this thing inside of us is... Pressing onward. I get both. Two-fisted. Okay. All right. Chapter 2. I want you to know that I am struggling for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What's the difference between wisdom and knowledge? Yes. Wisdom is what you do with knowledge. Okay, anybody else? <laughs> Second opinion. <laughs> yeah, uh, wisdom, wisdom, right, is um, Sophia. It isn't just having facts, is it? We oftentimes equate our scientific knowledge with the wisdom with which to use it. And that's a very different thing. You can know all kinds of facts and information. Have you ever witnessed this in, say, students? That you'll have actually see that there are students who will be able to recount facts and information, but they don't have a clue as to how to be able to put that into practical application in their life. This was my justification for not getting good grades. 
I'm wise. I don't need all that information. <laughs> but um, Paul, will, Paul, obviously what Paul is driving at is that they're not, they're not things that can be separated, but they are to be distinguished. Knowledge, yeah, Paul even knows that he as a scholar of the Scriptures knows the Scriptures as we as Christians should. But knowing the Scriptures and having the wisdom to understand what the whole point and purpose of the Scriptures is, something similar to what Martin Luther... Martin Luther understood the Scriptures, probably even memorized them. He could, he could recall ver, chapter and verse by memory. In fact, sometimes we actually have to correct the writings of Martin Luther. Um, we have to correct them because he is by memory quoting certain passages by their chapter and their verse. And you know how memory is. It's somewhat imperfect. But he, was, he didn't sit there and open up his text and go through and say, this is what it is this text says. He was going on the basis of his mind. He knew all this. But it wasn't until he opened up the key. The key to the Scripture is what? That the law leads us to Christ. And that there in Christ, now the law has found its fulfillment. But if you have all knowledge but no wisdom, all you see is the law as life as what you are supposed to do and not do, that God is going to reward you based upon what it is that you do, or you're going to, you're going to benefit, your life is going to be benefited by the way that you conform to the law. And so <coughs> Paul is going to be saying, essentially, Christ is the end of the law. This shadow was here for a reason, but it is not the end. It is only something that points ultimately to this which is going to take place. And here you had all these scholars, all these people who thought that they had all this knowledge, especially the Jewish scholars, all this knowledge. They could quote the fathers. They could quote rabbi so-and-so and rabbi so-and-so, but unable to distinguish between law and gospel, they lost their wisdom. They had no wisdom. One more sip. All right, let's go on. <coughs> I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. Fine-sounding arguments. All right, well, we're going to uh, talk a little bit more about that as we go on. Um, why, don't you, uh, why don't you read with me <clears throat> verses 6 and 7 and 8. Okay, together. So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. Yeah, now, now, what is that, that human philosophy? 
um, human philosophy. Has, has anybody here ever uh, studied philosophy in college? It, uh, it's considered to be uh, probably the most worthless degree that anybody could get. And uh, strangely, yeah, I know Bill did it. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it's okay. It's, uh, the, let's point it. He kind of looks like a philosopher, though, don't you think? You know? <laughs> the um, yet uh, there was actually great value in it. I mean, it's, it was a great prelude to law school, right? I mean, it actually was G give you a good understanding of history, the the flow of thought, and of course, um, human philosophy at this time was a little unusual. Uh, I've been reading the works of Aristotle, and he spends the stuff that I've been reading is where he talks about pregnancy and he talks about the development of the child in the womb and the way in which they understood pregnancy, the way that, I mean, they didn't have any understanding of DNA. They thought that if a mother looked at her husband while they were in the act of love and she stared at his face, that the child would look more like the father. Now, today we would just be going whoa, you know, you guys, you didn't have any idea what the real facts are, right? But philosophers were trying to be able to put together the mysteries of the universe in which they lived. We talked today about evolution. Evolution was something that the Greeks faced too. They, something that, that was one alternative theory. Aristotle didn't believe in it. It's interesting. Um, we today are so often subjected to human philosophy that we don't quite realize it because what oftentimes is our argumentation or our sense of logic is oftentimes rooted in something that's far deeper. Uh, we live in a very individualistic culture. To us, uh, so often when you talk to people, it's what it is that they themselves particularly feel or what they think. Reality is as I perceive it. And therefore, it's an unassailable thing. You are protected because if reality is as you perceive it, morality is as you perceive it, and therefore, you cannot be condemned. And you see why it is that <clears throat> the old Adam loves that because when he has to deal with the deeds, his own sinful deeds, he has to come back to the fact that he himself is his own judge of himself. Now, Paul will also be talking about Judaism. And Judaism, if you ever, did you ever see that movie? It, you have to prove how old you are if you have. It's called Yentl. Barbara Streisand, she wants to be a, um, uh, she wants to be a Jewish scholar and she could not study Jewish law unless she's a male. So she dresses up as a male, and the entire time we all feel extremely uncomfortable. <laughs> and she, as she's studying, she starts to realize that what they have is like it's, a, it's like law itself in our country, where you have a whole bunch of precedent that's one thing is built upon the other, and the opinion or the decision of Rabbi so and so has told us, and by the time that you get down to it, you've taken a passage where Moses says that they were not, <clears throat> they were not to eat um, 
the, they were not to boil a kid in the milk of its mother, a, a goat. So in other words, what would you do if you would take that meat and you would boil it in goat's milk that came from the mother? Moses prohibits this action of boiling a goat in a baby goat in the milk of its mother. That became the basis for the separation of meat and dairy products in the Jewish culture. You've heard that the, the, the kitchens have to be kosher, they have to be separated. In what way does that text tell you that? But what you got was you got a huge tradition, a rabbinic tradition, where they were arguing on the basis of this so-called series of philosophical laws, and they would build up a whole tradition of things that you were allowed to do and things that you weren't allowed to do. And every single aspect of life came to be regulated by that legalistic system of what Paul will call this pretentious knowledge, this pretentious wisdom. Now, <clears throat> he's, gonna, he's going to, you know, you heard the story about you know, Alexander the Great who takes out his sword and cuts through the knot, right? They said that whoever was going to be able to be the person who was going to undo this knot, kind of like the story of King Arthur and his sword, whoever would undo this knot would be a ruler of the world. And all these guys come up and they, you know, they're using their hands and they can't quite be able to undo the knot. And Alexander the Great comes out and pulls out a sword and goes, Tsh! and cuts the knot. And everybody else goes, ooh. Uh, it's kind of a good way of doing it. Um, Paul doesn't even take on the whole Judaic tradition and say, no, on this point you're wrong, on this point you're wrong, on this point. Paul comes up, pulls out the sword, and says, in Christ... These are nothing but shadows. And he says, now let no man judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day. These things are shadow. But the fullness has now come with Christ. Once you have Christ. <coughs> All right, let's go on and read. Find that. So see to it, backing up in verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. Uh, which, by the way, back in those days, philosophy meant everything. It was science. Science meant everything. I mean, it wouldn't matter whether or not you were talking about ethics. It wouldn't matter whether or not you were talking about microscopes or whatever it might be. It was all philosophy. It's called science, knowledge. And the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. Say, so how is it that we are subject to no one and servants of everyone? This is a, this is Luther again. Uh, this this. If those of you that were in first service, when you read St. Augustine, he, he is always showing you the two sides of God, and yet there's never any contradiction. God is omnipresent, yet he is local. He, is, he comes to us in a place. He in, is in, in Christ, yet he is everywhere. God knows all things, but he learns I mean, it's, God, is, God, God never repents 
but he turns away his anger. How, how, can you, how can you reconcile this philosophically from a human point of view? How can something be and not be at the same time? How can something be eternal and yet be local and present? How, I mean, you know, the common man might struggle with, how is it that sin came into the world? How is it that evil came into the world? God is a great, it was a gracious God. God is God. And to be able to try to climb up into the very mind of God is not going to be possible with little ladders of human reason. Paul says, don't let the basic principles of this world actually stop you from being able to understand these truths of God. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised. Now the Jew would pop up and say, hey, yeah, Paul is now following the law in putting off the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ. What did circumcision represent? <clears throat> this is a conversation that we have um, with adults. What is circumcision? What is that? What does that represent? Well, you have a child who's eight days old. You are cutting off the flesh. You're putting off the flesh. That is to say, it came to actually symbolize, not just a covenantal thing in the shedding of blood, but it came actually to symbolize that one was not doing what the flesh wanted the flesh to do. This became a mark certainly of Judaism. But Paul says that now we have received a different kind of circumcision. That is, that the old Adam is being put off in us. The flesh, the sinful nature, we are actually rejecting what it is that the sinful nature wants to do. That Christ, and this, and this, this is a gift Realize what this means. That the capacity to be able to actually say no to the sinful nature is something that God gives to us as a gift to be able to say no. <clears throat> well, not always. Verse 12. When is this, how has this happened? Having been buried with him in You guys are not getting very liturgical on me here. <laughs> Having been buried with him in and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. How can anybody say baptism is nothing but a symbol of our commitment to God? See, that's talk about human philosophy. That's from a human point of view. This old Adam is literally put to death by means of the Holy Spirit in, through, and by means of the power of the Word of God in baptism. This is a, a gift that God has given to us. Luther, you know, is, um, is the great proponent of this. Your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. Why would Paul bring out the fact that Christ was raised from the dead and when he talks about baptism like this? Why, why, why does the resurrection of Christ, what does that got to do with baptism? 
I'm going to make lunch for you today because you've been answering the questions and nobody else has. They, they go to... I don't think anybody could hear you, but I'm... The, in, in baptism, we are literally, truly, actually united to Christ so that when you get into that airplane, right? You get into an airplane and you fly in that airplane, what happens to the airplane happens to you. In baptism, you are united with Christ so that when Christ was raised from the dead, you and I were also raised with him. Now, anybody think that they can take some sort of an instrument and measure that? Does anybody here think that there is some way of being able to tell that when John Feeney walks down the street that he glows because he's been united to Christ in baptism? Come on, somebody say it, you know. <laughs> See what philosophy will do for you? <laughs> yeah, it gleams. I gleam. Um, the, um, that's, that's actually, we call it the halo effect. There, there, this, is, this is the mystery of Christ in you, Paul says, that those of you who have been baptized into Christ in Romans, baptized into Christ, were baptized into his death, that whereas Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, you too would walk in a newness of life. That literally, truly, and actually, we were raised with Christ and have entered into paradise we have died already does anybody have any problems dying today knowing that so often you know you, you can kind of test people's metal can't you that old kennedy question if you were to die today would you go to heaven i i um, i asked that of the mormons i would say I, if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? And you know that about 90% of them said, I have no idea. Because they didn't know whether or not, they, they have three levels of heaven, they say. They don't know what, what they mean by that is, they don't know whether or not they're going to go to the first, second, or third, but they're pretty sure they can make the second, but they're not so sure about the third. The third is for those who have done all their temple work and done everything according to the ordinances and the statutes of the church. Well, not really about God, but what they, they, they're, they're saying, I don't know whether or not I'm going to be doing enough good works to be able to make it into heaven. According to Roman Catholic doctrine, not even the Pope can be certain of going to heaven. Can you? Can I? And when you think about it, it's like if you said to a person, is it possible for you to go, imagine what it was like, say, for instance, my great-grandparents. My great-grandmother was born in 1894. They came over maybe about, um, maybe 10 years before that, like sir. And they say, do you think, uh, great-grandpa, that the day will ever come where you can go from here to Europe in six hours? 
ho, 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 this shall never be. Uh, yet you step into a plane and you can say that whatever happens to that plane happens to you, that if Christ was raised from the dead, that you and I are also going to be raised from the dead and that you and I never have to worry because it doesn't depend upon the person who's in the doggone plane. It isn't like we're running and helping the plane. It has all to do with what it is that that plane does. And Paul says, thou, you are in Christ. And that plane, that Christ, has already passed from death into life. Woe unto us when we get our funeral that we have somebody stand up and say, you know, Bob, John, Fred was a good person and he was very sincere and wanted to be able to help people. And, you know, I'm just looking forward to him looking down on me up there, you know, because he's been such a great guy. If you do that, I'm going to walk right out of your funeral, even if I'm the pastor. What do we do? We stand up and we say, you know what? You know this sinful person named John Feeney? This person who had a sinful nature, who was born blind, dead, and an enemy of God, by God's infinite grace and mercy, was put into Christ when he was just but a few days old. And there in Christ, the blood of Christ, at sometimes not so often and sometimes more often, that blood of Christ kept washing away the sins of his sinful nature so that this old Adam was put to death in him and he had no confidence whatsoever in his own personal righteousness. But he believes that when he was baptized into Christ, that Christ put on him and this blood of Christ cleansed him from all his sins. And so he's in heaven today not because of who he was, but because of who Christ was. And let's, um, let's remember that that's really where it is that our confidence lies. But let's live our lives boldly because of it. Live our lives boldly. Don't be afraid. What can they do to you? You don't have to be afraid of anything. That's why it is that I, I bought a Volkswagen um, 1987 Vanagon camper. And I, we're going to drive across the country and I'm going to sleep in that camper. And no matter what my wife says, I'm not going to be afraid of anything. She said, we're going to stay in hotels, aren't we? And I said, we'll see. I don't want you to hear the side commentary going on over here. Okay. Look at what Paul says here in verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. God made you alive. Okay, you hear people say, I accepted Jesus as my Savior, right? 
I, 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 if, you're, if your name, if your person is the subject of the sentence of salvation, you're wrong. God made you alive. When you were dead in your sins, how in the world can a person accept Christ if they're dead in their sins? God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood in opposition to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. The written code. We might, might want to just call it the law. Um, he forgives. How is it possible? How is it possible for this old man, this sinful nature who does sinful things, how is it possible for that old Adam to get nailed? by means of God's forgiveness. Because then the old Adam has nothing with which to accuse me of. And that's not just the old Adam, it's even Satan himself, right? The word Satan is, to, is the accuser. And what is, that, what, is, what is your sinful nature saying to you when you sin? It's saying, you did something wrong, right? You got a conscience, right? You did something wrong. Then you have a choice, I guess you might say, put it from a human point of view. You did something wrong then what you do is you say, well, that's the fault of the other person. If I'm, if I'm slandering somebody, it's because that person deserved it. If I'm envious of somebody, they didn't deserve what they got. If I'm a person who is wanting to be able to have the possessions of somebody else, it's because they must have gotten it by ill-gotten gains. And I don't want to be able to say that it's my problem. But, if I can turn around and if I can find that I have a God who forgives me for those sins, then maybe I could actually begin to accept them as sins. If I know that I have a God who richly and daily forgives my sins, why can't I be honest about my sins? Well, maybe it's because of what I told you what Pastor Inkfist, you know, and Garrison Keillor, the news from Lake Wobegon, he says that whenever Pastor Inkfist gets up and tells them that he's human just like they are, they only have two questions. Is he committing adultery and with whom? <laughs> that Pastor Inkfist has a sinful nature too. But what do we do with all of our sinful natures? It's the blood of Christ that cleanses us and this is what enables us to be able to think with the mind of Christ. Now all of a sudden the foolishness of God isn't so foolish anymore. Now all of a sudden I find myself believing that I have the hope of the resurrection when it's not rational anymore. I find myself being able to transcend the just what I see and what I experience as something that now I have a hope that lies beyond that. Guys, the hope of the universe, the hope of this God who spoke and it all came into being, this God who has made us to be in his own image. 
Uh, I'm just kind of preaching. I'm sorry. What does he say? He disarmed him. Verse 16. Therefore, do not any let anyone do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So, in other words, all this stuff that was taking place here, the cultists and all the laws that God gave them in the Old Testament. These things were there, just like we have children. We say, you can't cross the street. You can't eat too much cake. We were watching this movie uh, last night, uh, Home Away, Home Alone. <laughs> Macaulay Culkin, whose parents are away, right? What is, what is he eating? Mounds of ice cream, probably for breakfast. Why do we give them rules? We give them rules so that for their benefit and for their preservation. But when they grow up and they mature, they don't need the rules anymore. They now know what's best for them. Paul says that now that the time has come, that Christ has come we now are capable of being able to actually transcend that. Now the law of love is something which transcends this, that in Christ all this has now been taken away. So he's not going to let anybody rule our conscience. We're going to come to the end here. Do not, verse 18, let anyone who delights in false humility, that's what happens when we get legalistic, we become proud about ourselves. And the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. You, you're going to find that there are a lot of secret religions that do this and still do this today. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen and, has, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. We call him Christianity under the banner of hypocrisy. He has lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. All right. Well, um, let's just look very quickly at chapter 3, verse 1. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Don't you just want to drink those words? Just drink those words. All right, you rug rats, you come in here right now. <laughs> no, just kidding. We love you. We love you. How was Sunday school? All right, let's close with a benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with his countenance and give you his peace. Amen.